This is B-Side, I'm Tamara Keith, and I'm driving through Sacramento with Officer David Eagleton of the Sacramento Police Department. No matter how long you were at Graveyard, it never... I mean, you get used to it to a point, but it doesn't matter, you still get tired. That's why I love working in this area, because it's always busy. <laughs> Less likely to get tired, because there's stuff going on. Yes. <laughs> So, um, how long have you been a police officer? Been a police officer for about five and a half years. And what made you want to get into the police thing? I've always wanted to be in law. Um, originally when I was a lot younger, I wanted to be a lawyer. And then I started getting interested in uh, psychological profiling. My main interest originally was to go into FBI and be a part of the... Um, profiling unit but started doing this and I've been having fun I mean so much fun and I don't think I'd do anything else it's interesting that you mentioned lawyers because um, our next story actually comes from a guy who, who was a lawyer and he says that it's not all it's cracked up to be um, this is Bill Sperling who's here to tell us all about life in a big law firm For the past three years, I've been practicing law as an associate in a large law firm. Many people ask me what it's like. Well, it's like this. If you had a soul before you went to law school, and if somehow you kept it intact during law school, you most surely will lose it after law school working at a large law firm. Let me explain how these places work. Law firms are run by partners who hire associates. These associates, also affectionately known as the billing units, are billed out at $200 an hour. Unfortunately, after working 3,000 hours a year, the billing units get paid the equivalent of $25 an hour. The partners keep the difference. Therefore, the more associates at the firm, the better. However, sometimes there isn't enough work for all the associates. That's when firms are forced to right-size. That means the termination of the less productive billing units. The billing units know this, and so they often work to undermine each other in order to survive. This creates the pervasive snake pit atmosphere that makes working at these places so exciting. The only sure way to avoid the merciful yet dreaded pink slip is to bill as many hours as humanly possible. This leads to some curious accounting procedures like triple billing. I myself once billed 36 hours in one day. Mathematicians at MIT are still grappling with that one. Regardless of how hard one works, after seven years, the partner throws the billing unit out and hires a new one. Thus, law firms combine the best features of indentured servitude, a sweatshop, and a pyramid scheme. (laughs) There's not much that can be done about the hours an associate is forced to bill because lawyers are considered professional employees. This means that associates are exempt from federal labor laws, which set forth the minimum standards of human decency. It is also why many partners read Charles Dickens to learn how to increase associate productivity. (laughs) And to top things off, the work is mind-numbingly boring. In an effort to spice things up, lawyers sometimes try to insert a little levity into their jobs. It does not work. Here's an example. In the case of Zangrando v. Sipula, a judge thought he would get creative with the way he wrote this decision. Here's a sample. The car was coming much too close. Something inside told her. The next thing Ms. Zangrando knew, a poodle flew over her shoulder. 
And the hilarity only increases when you realize the point of all this humor was to <laughs> hand down a decision against a woman whose dog was killed by a runaway taxi. So why did the associates put up with it? Well, it might be because they feel like they don't have any options. And they'd be right. Three years of training to ponder the difference between the phrase shall be punished and may be punished tends to take the fight out of you. Well, that and $100,000 worth of debt. So that's what life is like working as a lawyer in some shiny glass tower of hell. I don't expect any sympathy. After all, I've been trained to give none, so why should I expect to get some? But if I can stop just one person from following in my footsteps, well, then maybe that's one less person I have to stab in the back to keep my job. That was Bill Sperling. His story was recorded by Story Salon, which is a coffee house storytelling series in Los Angeles. Yeah, can you log me off and show me the link, please? Someone is over there fighting. So we are headed over there. I got to tell you, copy. We had a welfare check pending 22nd Street in Paypal. Most likely, unless, unless it's somebody actually involved in the fight, or most likely it's just a huge party, and it's probably getting out of hand, and people are just calling in to report a fight so that we'll get out there faster. That's generally what happens. Let's go down here, because there's a party. This would be your uh, juveniles. <laughs> Need a segue on... And juveniles, yeah. Juveniles at three o'clock in the morning, they're out walking the streets at parties, and no parents to be seen. Hello. Have a nice day. Toodles. You too. So we found the party, not the fight. Found the party, no fight. So, do you think all these kids that were just at this party were like high school? A lot of them were. Um, I'd say majority of them are, yeah. And it is, it is now three in the morning. It is three in the morning, <laughs> and they're still out. Some of them walking, uh, walking the street still. Um, yeah, I can't remember one high school party where I was out walking the streets at three in the morning. You know, if I ever went to a party at someone's house, I was staying the night there. And not uh, wandering about. Well, maybe we went to the wrong kinds of parties? <laughs> I guess so. Maybe we weren't having as much fun. For Anna Fritz, the problem was school. For most of us, our first experience of authority, institutional authority, is the classroom. And it just didn't work for Anna. She was one of those kids that was smart and mature and was just ready to move beyond the classroom in high school. She was part of something that's called the unschooling movement. She spoke with Julie Sabatier about rejecting the authority of school. Well, I'm Anna Fritz, and I left high school, rose out of high school when I was 16. I'm now 28 years old, and I'm a working musician. So what made you decide to, as you said, rise out of high school? Well, it was a book that I read, a subversive piece of literature called The Teenage Liberation Handbook, 
How to Quit School and Get a Real Life and Education. It's by Grace Llewellyn. Um, and it's kind of the Bible of the unschooling movement. <laughs> um, and I read it when I was 15. And it was just like, it was one of those books that was just every few minutes had to put it down and go, yeah, <laughs> why isn't someone, why hasn't someone said this to me before? Um, it, you know, there's a very brief part at the beginning that just kind of picks apart what conventional compulsory schooling is like and what it really does for us, which is generally not about education. It's about control and it's about learning how to be a cog in the machine of the larger society. Um, but she also deals with the nuts and bolts of, okay, so I'm 15. How am I going to convince my parents to let me do this? Um, is it legal? How, how am I going to deal with the law? So how did you convince your parents to let you do this? <laughs> well, I was, I was lucky. I had parents who were very open-minded, pretty politically and socially radical, but then when it came down to, okay, but I actually want to leave. <laughs> I don't, I want to do this on my own. It was hard for them. It was scary. Uh, but I wrote like a 15-page proposal of what I was going to do when I left school. And it was more stuff than you could possibly do in like 10 years. I mean, the list of books I was going to read and internships I was going to do and trips I was going to take and... So I made this proposal and gave it to my parents, and they they were okay with it, thankfully, but um, there were some struggles in there. They also, um, one thing that we did was uh, found an adult out outside of my family to meet with regularly to kind of check in about what, not someone who was telling me what I needed to do, but someone who was checking in with me periodically about what my goals were, whether I was accomplishing them or not, how how I could accomplish them. What kind of school were you in before? Uh, magnet school. It was an, an arts specialty school. So I was doing a lot of music in school already. But I was really frustrated with the busy work and the elements of, of control that I just bristled under so much. Um, and I remember I had this incredible moment when I finally left school and I, I was a big reader. I really liked, um, literature and had had butted heads a lot with my literature teacher in my sophomore year. But I had this great moment of going to the library and discovering the literary criticism section and discovering that there was, there were shelves and shelves of books that were all different interpretations of the books that I was reading. And I was just floored because in high school, basically my teacher picked one of those essays in one of those books and taught it as, this is the truth about what Hemingway meant. <laughs> and discovering that literature was a living, breathing art form and that there were tons of different opinions about it and that I was entitled to have my own was just, it was mind-blowing. Is there anything that you didn't do during that time that you think you missed out on you feel like you missed out on now well, I didn't go to prom but I don't feel like I really missed out on anything <laughs> but I mean did you miss uh, well you probably didn't take calculus either no I didn't and I no I went up through trig or did some basic the beginnings of trig I did I took the SAT and the ACT after I left high school and scored really well on them 
I don't really feel like I missed much. And actually, I became very popular at my high school after I left. (laughs) That was an interesting phenomenon because I wasn't a real popular kid when I was going to school. But suddenly I was a legend at my high school, the one who got away. Did you inspire anybody else to do what you did? Well, my brother left after I did. And and when I first left school, he, he was so down on me about it. He thought that I was going to be a total screw-up because of it. But once he got to high school and, and got really bored and frustrated, too, he left as well. The frustrating thing that I always came up against is people always kind of had this attitude of, oh, well, that's okay for you. You can do that because you're so self-motivated and, you know, you... But that was so frustrating to me because I felt like, you know, I struggle with motivating myself. Everybody does. And I just felt like, no, anybody can do this. It's really about fascination-based learning. And that's something that that anybody can do. And it's really just about getting excited about the things that interest you. My whole experience of being a self-educated person has been sort of a litmus test of who I want to work with and what situations I want to put myself in. If someone's going to make a really big deal about, well, I can tell that you're intelligent, you know what you're talking about, you're creative, you're exactly who I want to work with, but you really need this piece of paper. A lot of times that's a situation I don't really want to be in if if that's so important. Thanks for talking with me. My pleasure. After rising out of high school, Anna Fritz took the SAT, did really well, and then decided not to go to college either. She's now a professional musician in Portland, Oregon. Julie Sabatier first talked to her for DIY Portland, a community radio show. And this is B-Side. I'm Tamara Keith, and I'm with Officer David Eagleton of the Sacramento Police Department. Um, are you, would you consider yourself an authority on anything, you know, like an expert on anything? Uh, <laughs> expert. Well, let's see. Narcotics, I would say I'm an expert on that. You just end up being an expert on narcotics in this job. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, so. Some people don't like to work narcotics because there's a lot involved with it as far as booking evidence and um, being articulate in the reports. Um, But I I specifically work it. It's just something fun for me. It's kind of a niche that I've come across and found that I'm good at. So (laughs) I just like to work it pretty big niche it seems like on yeah. your beat it's it's rampant throughout my beat and throughout pretty much Sacramento well our next story comes from somebody who is an expert on something she would rather not know so much about here's Cat Snow the night was so ordinary I wasn't expecting it I was minding my own business not doing anything daring at all 
The fog had moved in, softening the glow of lights in my San Francisco neighborhood. But my book was on the back deck, and clouds were thickening up, so I was thinking it might rain. A cool wind ruffled across my skin as I strode across the deck to get the book. And then light glinted off a thin, jagged shape right in front of my breastbone, in that exact spot where they push on you to start your heart after it stops. And I jerked back and started to panic. Oh, please, God, don't let it be on me. Don't let it be on me. Where is it? It's gone. It's gone. It's not there. It's not there. There's nothing there. There's nothing there. There's nothing there. I stepped forward again, smack up against a web, and this time I saw the spider, and it was big and black with supermodel legs. It scrambled up the strands of its net. Broken silver strings floated, trembling toward my face. I jabbed my finger up at the wall where the spider sat and pronounced the verdict. You're going down. I grabbed the biggest plastic container I could find that was see-through. It's an instinctual thing. It had to be see-through. I didn't want a chance that the spider might be stuck to the lid when I lifted it up to shake the creature into the toilet. I couldn't just squash it because I know about spiders. The thing is, when you smash a spider that big, you can feel their little bodies squish. Right through the newspaper or the sole of your shoe, you can feel when their fibers crush and their juices smoosh out. It feels like they oozed right under your skin and died. Squashing is not an option. No, I have a long history with spiders. There was the time in 1994 when we had a brown recluse living on the back deck in an overstuffed chair from the basement. Despite the name, brown recluse, I woke in the night, sure it would crawl into my bedroom and bite my big toe, and that would cause necrosis. Necrosis makes your flesh die, and it starts at the bite and slowly works its way to your heart, and there's no known antidote. So when I woke that night around 3 o'clock, I started wondering if I had one of those big butcher knives in the kitchen, the kind my mom used to sever chicken parts. And if I did... Would I have the courage to hack off my big toe to stop the necrosis? And how quickly would this have to be done? Should I go get the hatchet now and keep it nearby? And if I waited until the spider struck, would I have time to walk down the hallway to the kitchen? Or would the poison hit my bloodstream before I could find the knife? I couldn't really call to ask anyone at that hour, so I just lay there trying to work up the courage to hack off my big toe. Over a lifetime, I've learned all about killing spiders. So I knew how to deal with the big one this time. I slapped the tub down against the side of my house, wiggled it against the spider's legs until she fell into it, and slapped the lid on. Success! I hurried for the bathroom. That's when I lifted up an edge to peer in and stopped. The spider was lavender. Husky, brilliant lavender. In an instant, I knew I wasn't going to kill her. Tiny hairs shimmered along her legs. Two points crested at the top of her abdomen and sloped down into a curve. She was elegant, delicate, beautiful. I wandered about the house fighting with myself. Let her go in the redwood forest. What the heck does she know about living in a redwood forest? Maybe she has no food there. Well, you were going to kill her. Let her go. Here? Are you out of your mind? She'll stalk you and eat you. Um, do I believe that? Yes, she can. She will consume your entire adult body with her little tiny spider body. 
I am clearly crazy if I believe that. I put the tub on the deck overnight and peek in again in the morning. She's turned black. I've destroyed her joy. Obviously, lavender is her color for joy, for freedom, for spinning a beautiful web on a foggy night. I look at her little blackened self in the tub, make a desperate grab for decency, and I let her go in my backyard. That afternoon, I head over to the Redwoods with my dog, across the Bay Bridge, where I imagine an earthquake happening and my car falling into the river. The scenario spins itself out as I struggle to escape the car, grab the dog, and swim toward the surface. I'm running out of air and losing my grip on a wiggling dog before I manage to remember, Cat, you're not in the water. You're in the car. And what is going on? What is going on? My heart is pounding. My breath is shallow. My limbs feel hollow and insubstantial. Uh, it's fear. I let go of the spider, but all that fear is still inside me, roaming around, looking for something to attach to. I tell myself to breathe. Just drive and breathe. Breathe. When I get to the trail, I'm still lightheaded, panicky. My eyes cut across the landscape in a frantic kind of way. Edginess slips through my veins. I walk and breathe. I touch the bark of trees, press my feet into the earth, and wait for the fear to die down. It takes a mile or so, not far. I know this. I know how to do this. I wish I didn't. I wish to God I didn't know so much about fear. Not just spiders, everything. Every time I get sick, I think, will I ever be well again? Maybe I won't. Do you know that when I started journalism, I was so afraid to write. I used to just sit at my desk with a blank paper and pen for an hour, just sitting, maybe writing a word or a sentence and crossing it out. But the point was just to sit and not run away from the fear. I told myself, that's all you have to do. I did it day after day. So fear is a very familiar demon. I know the feeling of it in my body, the difference between the hollowness in my gut, fear of danger, and the hollowness in my chest, fear of inadequacy. I know how fear diminishes what's inside me and giganticizes what's outside me. I know how fear combined with longing creates tears. I know how to face it down. I know how to relax it, wait it out. I know how to sneak about and come at something through the back door so the fear doesn't know what I'm up to until it's happening. I guess the best thing I could say about it is fear no longer stops me. I know too much about it. It's not exactly what I would have asked to know about, and it's not very useful at parties. But it's wisdom. It runs pretty deep. And it's mine. Kat Snow is a public radio producer and editor, and she lives in San Francisco.
This is B-Side. I'm Tamara Keith, and I'm with Officer David Eagleton, Sacramento Police Department. So, are you ever afraid? Uh, not really. I, I've been uncomfortable, so I guess if you want to consider that fear. When I first got out on my own off of training, I was uh, patrolling. We actually was patrolling this area. And I went down a street that I hadn't been down, or wasn't, had never gone down before. And um, as I was going in, down, it was basically a cul-de-sac. As I was going down, um, I had two cars in front of me, two cars behind me. And I'm going down this cul-de-sac. Well, everyone from every, all the houses were coming out, and they're all dressed in the same color. So immediately, uh, you know, you have gang activity, and they're all coming out towards the street. Well, I have to go down this whole cul-de-sac in order to turn around and come back and I have to go, had to go back to that crowd and I just felt very uncomfortable and about a week I think it was actually a week later officer went over there and ended up getting in a uh, fight with someone um, the guy was high on some narcotics and uh, firm northbound Dry Creek at uh, Put your hands in the air. Driver, turn the car off. Open the door. Keep your hands in the air and step out. Don't reach for anything. You're gonna get shot. Defense check. Final stop. No one adjusting. Face that way. We're uh, facing southbound. Walk South backwards. The car is listed as stolen. Uh, yeah, it's a rental car listed as stolen. There's a listed suspect on the thing, but none of these people are that person. So it's probably some sort of either a fraud deal or they're just using this, passing this car along and using it for their drug dealing. Nobody knows wh whose car it is. They just say it's their car and then let people borrow it. It was never returned on time and that's rent the rental car agency reported stolen. Get a rundown on the night. Um, one arrest. About 10 calls, one arrest. And very last call so far that is before you leave <laughs> stolen vehicle well that's it for this edition of b-side a huge thanks to ethan Lindsay, and renee Gattel who produced the show we had contributions from lewis and anthony mascoro at 826 nyc peter christensen Bill Sterling and Story Salon, Julie Sabatier, and Kat Snow. For more about this show, B-Side in general, our crew, all those things, please visit bsideradio.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Tamara Keith, and this is Officer Eagleton. Thank you. Uh, hope you guys learned a little bit, and uh, have a good night. Or morning, as the case may be. <laughs> Take you back to the station since it's been quite a long night for you, I'm sure. Yeah, the sun is rising. <laughs> yeah, I see it rising every day, it's no big deal.
Here comes the sun again. 